Welcome to the Embrace It series, where women with all types of disabilities can be real, resourceful, and stylish. With each episode, you'll walk or roll away with everyday tips, life hacks, and success stories from community leaders and influencers. So take off your leg braces and stay a while with Lainey and Estella. Hi, I'm Lainey, and I have CMT. And I'm Estella, and I also have CMT, a neuromuscular disorder affecting approximately 2.6 million people worldwide. That's as many as MS. We believe disabilities should never get in the way of looking or feeling good. Both of us wear leg braces and have learned through our own personal journeys to embrace it. Brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Each episode is designed to challenge your own stigmas and beliefs around disability. We want our listeners to get the most value for their time spent with us. So we interview some of the most empowering disability badasses in the world. Through storytelling, personal experiences, and tips, we're all reminded of our own strengths and endless potential. For more information and exclusive resources, check out our websites at trend-able.com and hnf-cure.org. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button for future episodes and special promos. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the Embrace It podcast with Lainey and Estella. Hey Lainey. Hi. Hi, everyone. We are so excited for today's guest who actually has a lot in common with your background, Lainey. She's a therapist and she specifically works with people living with chronic illness and disability like herself. She calls herself the Brainy Social Worker and her name is Rochelle Friedman. Welcome, Rochelle. Hi. It's so good to be here. Lainey, you're an MSW. Oh my Gosh. And and a member of the tribe as well. I'm assuming <laughs> by the Freedmen. Yes. Yes. Yes, of course. Of yes, course. Yes, yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My my what I love like I love what you're doing, and we're gonna get into it with everyone here, but we have similar paths because I have an MSW and I worked with women and girls on self-esteem and body image issues. Yeah. And I kind of got out of the individual and group counseling. And here I am now with Estella and Trendable and Embrace It and all of that. But yeah. um, I absolutely think there's such a need and such a value to you do marital counseling, you do work with individuals and the issues that can come up are so, um, you know, specialized in a lot of ways. I mean, some are just like loss is loss, right? Whether you're grieving the loss of your body and how it once was, or your, you know, separation, whatever it may be that loss is loss, but the unique issues of chronic pain and, and how you are working with people is really cool. So I'm, so oh, excited you. for everyone to get to know you and, and all of that. So I did enough talking. Why don't <laughs> we start out with you and like, tell us, I know you have a disability yourself. So yeah. if you don't mind sharing what that is and how you got into the work that you're doing. Yeah. So I have EDS, POTS and mast cell activation syndrome. And I, I've had asthma for most of my life. I've had most of these things for most of my life, but I didn't get a diagnosis for the EDS, POTS or MCAS until I was an adult. Um, I also have ADHD as well. And I was one of those rare girls who actually got a diagnosis when I was like six. 
So I don't necessarily know how that happened, but it did. And that's great. And I'm glad, but I know that that's not the story for so many women and girls. And and that can be really hard and traumatic. I got into this. In undergrad, I had my first big flare as an adult and it was really hard. And of course, right, like the flares suck and they're hard and they're the worst. And um, I lost some function of my body that like it didn't come back and I realized that there weren't any therapists out there that were able to work with this. It was all very like CBT oriented of like, yeah, but you know, let's push that away. What are you feeling? What's the thought? What's the distortion? Well, there is no thought distortion. I can't use my hands. Like Mm -hmm. there's no thought distortion. They just don't work the same. Mm -hmm. So that was when I went into my MSW program, I was like, I, I want to work with my own population because I don't see anybody else doing that. And now I see a lot more people doing that. And I'm very grateful for that, but I didn't at the time. I think listeners may not know what you even mean by a thought distortion. Although if you read Trendable's blog on common thinking tracks for people with disabilities, which we'll put in the show notes, uh, you might know, but why don't you kind of fill everyone in? What does that even mean, a thought distortion? Yeah, so a thought distortion, like a lot of what I encountered before was, oh, well, you can still go on with school and you just have to figure out another way to use your hands. That's a thought distortion that you can't use your hands. And while there is an element of truth in that, like I have learned a lot more about my hands. I have learned how to, how to find ways that work for me so that I can use my hands. It wasn't the truth at the time. And I needed to grieve my hands. I needed to grieve the idea that I wasn't going to be writing these huge papers. I wanted to go get a PhD originally. I wasn't going to be able to go that route. It just wasn't going to be realistic. So at the time it wasn't a thought distortion. I needed to grieve. That felt like like it, it increased the difficulty in processing the grief that I couldn't find a therapist that would allow me to grieve and hold that space at the time. What does that grieving process look like? What's a healthy way that you kind of steer your clients and the people that you work with towards grieving? Yeah, so it's really different for everyone. But I one of the things that I always tell clients is, whatever emotion comes up is the acceptable and correct emotion because it's yours and it's your brain signaling that this is something that is coming up for me. This is something that I need to feel. And what I've noticed is that in EMDR, when we process through grief, so regardless of whether it's denial and somebody's just like, let's take my scenario with the hands and somebody's like, nope, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to do it. This is what's happening. Okay, cool. Do that until your body says stop or do that until your brain is saying, oh my gosh, this is so painful. I literally can't. Okay. If it goes to, I can't start and somebody starts bargaining, go ahead. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to say, okay, but I won't do this. I won't use the remote or I won't work out or I won't go to yoga or whatever it is that they're doing. Okay. You can go ahead and do that. And then eventually what I have found is that at some point we get to sadness, which is I don't have the same use of my hands and I don't know that I ever will. And that really deep sadness is allowed to be in the space. There's not a lot of spaces where we're allowed to just feel that level of sadness, but that sadness, while it is not comfortable, it's human and it passes and it's okay for it to sit in the room when it needs to. So what does EMDR stand for? 
Um, so, yeah. So EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. And people will know it as like a gold star treatment for trauma. That's what it's really known for. I have found when, when I, I always tell my clients, my job is to follow my client's brain. So when I follow my client's brain, I'm still treating trauma. It may not be like the typical, like veteran trauma or whatever, you know, people read all sorts of stuff on EMDR and like who it's used for and how long it's used and all of that stuff. But if you set up a target in EMDR, we call them targets where we go after one memory and we see what comes up and we allow the emotions to be. And when you follow that target, you're able to identify here's where the trauma is and having having that person be able to acknowledge whatever it was that they were feeling in that moment and whatever it is that comes up in this moment is the process of grieving and is the process of compassionate grieving. Yeah. And it's not linear, right? Like, oh, I yeah. Mean- People, you know, if people who are listening know about, you know, all the stages of grief, they don't necessarily, like, there's no rules for grieving. I mean, and trauma, because I think that word um, for younger people, like millennials and my kids, millennials, (laughs) you people, like trauma is used very um, casually. And so for those listening who are, you know, more, a little older, like myself, people now refer to it as like big T and little T, like big trauma, you know, and that doesn't mean that trauma, like it's comparing traumas, but what you were referring to, like PTSD, a a veteran, you know, remembering a war, different than a sexually, you know, sexual abuse situation. Mm -hmm. All of us have small T's in our lives. And so for people listening, that might be when someone looked at you funny and said, oh, what's wrong with your legs? If you wear leg braces, like Estella yeah. and I, or surgeries, surgeries, surgeries yeah, that you might absolutely. have had, or, you know, um, little T's are losing people in your life. My, you know, yeah. my mom, it was five years yesterday. These mm-hmm. are all traumas and everyday traumas can be, you know, like parking in a disability spot and someone's oh, staring at you and yeah. questioning you. So all of that is just part of everyday life with a disability. And so you're helping people to say, this is a safe space. It's okay to feel what you feel and do that. And then, so my question next is, how are you helping people to not stay stuck in those and to like grow from there, you know? Yeah. So because I, I used to do neuroscience research, I actually described trauma, like trauma is a data storage method that our brain uses when it doesn't know what to do with something. And EMDR, we use dual attention. So like we send somebody to the back in the back to the memory, but we also want them here present with us. So we want to update the neurological system so that it understands it's not back there anymore. Part of trauma is that our systems feel like we're still in that past. We still are in the active trauma. And understandably, I mean, if you've been gaslit by doctors for the majority of your life or something like that, like it's easy to walk into a doctor's office and be like, you're just like all the other people that I've seen. And your brain is saying, yep, just like this one, just like this one, just like this one. It's all the same. I'm going to be gaslit. But once we do EMDR and we bring the system up to date, people are able to understand but this isn't the same doctor. This doctor may gaslight me. I don't know yet. Maybe you're just sitting in the waiting room. I don't know yet. 
but I do know that there is a chance that I won't be gaslit. And if I am gaslit, I have tools now because I've had all of these experiences. As a person with a disability, we all have some degree of these traumas. Like it's yeah, just absolutely. inevitable. But I feel like a lot of people don't even recognize their own traumas, right? And and they don't look as their at their experience growing up with a disability or you know, a late onset and a sudden diagnosis as trauma. So how do we start to kind of identify the traumas, even if they are not clear in our minds, but identify how they're still affecting us in our current lives and our relationships? Where, where, how do you make those connections with people? Yeah, that's a really hard one because like, even for myself, it's really hard if I go to see a new doctor to be like, if let's say I get gaslit, it's hard for me to walk out and be like, well, that was really traumatic. I need to take good care of myself because we're stuck in the, oh my gosh, this is what just happened and blah, 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 blah. And my, our heads go around and around. I think one of the biggest pieces that that I try to do and that I try to stress to clients is notice when your head is going around and around, that's really uncomfortable when your head is going around and around and around, or your body is feeling like it's going around and around and around. That may be a sign that trauma is happening. It may also be a sign that you're triggered about something that you were treated similarly to another, to another situation that was traumatic. When you notice that going around and around that spiral, be kind to yourself. In that moment, you're just having a human experience where trauma is coming up. How can we bring ourselves down? Do we want to, do we want to cuddle a pet? Do we want to hold ice? Like there's a lot of techniques that we can use to bring ourselves back into the present moment. Yeah, so I recently heard about, I actually just listened to a podcast this morning and they were talking about tapping. So physically, if you have an ability to use your hands in that way, tapping kind of simulates acupuncture and those trigger mm-hmm. points or whatnot. I don't know. It sounded kind yeah. of cool. I can't see myself doing it, let alone, but I'm just trying to do the one minute of meditation. <laughs> yeah. um, but something mm-hmm. that you were, something <laughs> you were saying, you know, cause in the beginning of our discussion, we were talking about thinking traps, right? And then you yep. casually mentioned, you gave a great example of being gaslit by a doctor's And if you've been in search of a diagnosis, like many of our listeners have, and maybe still don't have it or have it, what you were really talking about is another kind of thinking trap, really, which is that Mm -hmm. you're making assumptions based on your past experience. So if you're always, if your experience has mostly been doctors don't get it, they doubt me, they judge me, they don't believe me, they Mm -hmm. don't help me, then when you go to your doctor's appointment, if that's your mindset, then that's what you're looking for. Um, And so I would imagine as a therapist working with people with disabilities and chronic illnesses, that you're helping them to recognize that if they do something different, that that oftentimes changes the dynamic with a doctor, with your relationships with everyone. But if you go in automatically assuming this is going to suck, then it will probably suck. Oh, yeah. And we're communicating with people all of the time and working with neurodivergence. I try not to get into the like how we say things, Matt, like it does matter how we say things, how we look. You know, if I'm sitting there in a doctor's visit and I'm just like this with my arms crossed and like, yeah, well, this has been happening and here's here's what's going on with my body. I just uh, I don't know what 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 else do you want to know about it? Like, that's really different than me sitting there and saying, I've just been having a really hard time. 
I, I want to answer any questions that you may have. Mm-hmm. That's super different. One sounds like a trauma response though. That like angry person who's like, yeah, just go ahead. Give me your questions that you want me to answer for like the millionth time in my life. That sounds like a person who's back in trauma. That really, that really sounds a lot like our workshops when we're talking about, you know, types of communication, because that really does tie into having a disability is how you're able to reflect on how are you communicating with people, even though it may be exhausting, but just having that understanding that how we're communicating with people is going to get you what you want. In other words, the aggressive person who was once me a lot of times and Honestly, on a bad day, it still could be, but that if your response is bitchy and like, like rude, then not only are you um, unintentionally kind of confirming a stereotype that a person might have about someone with disabilities, but they're also not caring. They're not going to empathize with someone who comes off angry and like the world can't help me. Who wants to be around that? So what, that's what Estelle is saying. It's like, really, we, we are the most helpful and unhelpful to ourselves in the way that we communicate with people and how we are. And if we have a chip on our shoulder because of all this buildup trauma, totally valid. If you feel, yeah. you know, here, um, I don't know when this is going to air, but it's almost going to be Valentine's Day and a lot... Yeah of what I'm posting about this week and we are with embrace it is about dating. And it's a great example for people who've gotten divorced and, and want to find a new partner. And they say a lot of times, like, no one's going to want me. No one's going to like me. What do I have to offer? I have this chronic condition and it's only going to get worse and blah, blah, blah. And so they automatically push people away or don't even put themselves out there. And so, you know, when you push people away, they'll go away, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I do want to make it clear because like while we, while how we interact with doctors is really important, I want to make sure that like there's a distinction between like, regardless of trauma or not, doctors need to hear us. That's a part of their job. But like, that's, that's it. And like, we shouldn't be gaslit in the first place. Like the medical system is broken, all those things. Right. Yeah. But yeah, in I see that all the time with dating relationships, with building friends. I mean, and we want to talk about boundaries. Like when we go to build personal relationships, it's really easy for us to slide into the, oh, well, nobody's going to want me feeling because there's so much externalized ableism as well as internalized ableism that we tell ourselves and the world tells us, well, you're disabled. So who's going to want you anyway? Talk to us a little bit more about boundaries. I think a lot of us with disabilities, especially in chronic illness, are even more hesitant to put up boundaries because our disability, in a way, is its own boundary. It's a huge boundary in itself. And yeah. So, you know, like, you know, the whole spoon theory and the energy expenditure and yeah. protecting our energy is so, 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 so important with the yeah. disability. How do we find that? that empowerment to start identifying where we need those boundaries to, to be able to move forward with those boundaries without feeling guilt. I feel like that's, that's a real challenge that a lot of us face, you know, even especially with people closest in our lives, spouses, children, parents, how do we begin to start thinking about boundaries and and building them? And since we are talking about Valentine's day and people not letting their disability be an excuse for not finding a partner, 
there are many of us who found really wonderful partners, um, myself and Estella included. My disability had nothing to do with him liking me, loving me, whatever. If anything, it's how I handle my disability that made me more attractive to my husband. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a deal breaker for him. However, you're talking to a lot of couples who do a lot of caregiving, right? Yeah. So my husband, I would not want him to be my caregiver. And (laughs) we're fortunate that if I need a caregiver, we'll hire a caregiver. He will not be my caregiver. But a lot of people aren't fortunate in that way. And finances, it's expensive and may not have the ability to afford that. So how do you work with couples who feel burdened by like the, both the person with disabilities hates that feeling of being a burden. And then the person doesn't want to not take care of their loved one because they love them, but they also want a life of their own and they want to find that person attractive and sexy and all of that, but they're a nurse as well. So that's an interesting topic as a therapist. And how do you deal with couples around that issue? Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say that my husband has actually gone through phases where he has been my caregiver. And I, I tell couples, the able-bodied partner has grief too, that we need to acknowledge. And that can be really hard for the disabled person. But I, I sort of had to strong arm my husband at first into going to therapy. I was like, no, this is what is happening. We are going to go to therapy. And I, I was like, we'll go to couples first. And then you'll see that therapy isn't so scary. And then you'll go yourself. But, and that, that is eventually what happened. It took a while, but yes, that's what happened. Um, they have grief too. My husband has grief around my body. I'm sure that my husband talks about my body in his own therapy and that's allowed. And that I, I support that because nobody wants to see their loved one struggle. We're not built for that and to just be okay with that. And There are even conversations that my, my end goal for couples is I want you both to be able to talk about your body in a space that is neutral. It's not a positive or negative. It is a neutral. And that even the able-bodied spouse has space to say, this also makes me feel really sad and really lonely and coming back together in that and being able to say, I know, and I see you. And I also feel really lonely and scared or really lonely and alone or sad, whatever and helping them to connect on that level with these very foundational emotions and to hold space for each other. And I would imagine that part of what you do too with couples is in this situation is talking about the value that the spouse who with disabilities has. So, you know, yes, a person could be caretaking for another person physically, but there's a lot that all of us offer our partners and friends and whoever, right? So it can feel like I would imagine like, oh, it's always about me. He's pushing me. He's helping me. He's doing this. But if it is always about you, then it's, then it's something that you probably need to work on too, right? Oh, absolutely. You can be physically helping. Yes. Yeah. And, and not having it be, oh, how was your day? How are you feeling, honey? Like, it yep. shouldn't be like that. Like a, a oh. solid relationship is a give and take and you each are taking turns helping one another and um, yeah. in both physical and emotional and spiritual yeah. ways. Oh yeah. And the goal is to be able to find fun with partners again too. Like 
you know, my husband and I actually met because I was wearing a Star Wars shirt some night I was out with like my childhood best friend. And, um, you know, one of his friends was like, hey, it's Star Wars shirt girl. And I was like, oh, hi. Yes, I am wearing a Star Wars shirt. And then I saw my husband. And I was like, oh, he's pretty cute. Um, <laughs> so like we'll watch we'll watch like all of the Star Wars shows on Disney Plus together. Like that's something that we do that we really enjoy. Um we're also very into RuPaul's Drag Race. We watch that together a lot. So there's things that we talk about that have nothing to do with my body. You know, we have a toddler. He is super funny. Toddlers are like little drunk comedians. He does the funniest things. And we laugh about that stuff together. That's the goal is to be able to reconnect about something outside of the body. But a lot of the time we have to acknowledge the trauma that happens simply because of the disability. I mean, and outside, I know, I know we're talking about relationships yeah. right now, but let's say someone's not in a relationship. They have, you know, some uh, condition, maybe like POTS that you can yeah. speak on behalf of or CMT, which we yeah. can speak on behalf of. And you have those days where fatigue sets in or you have a flare up. Yeah. What are some examples of healthy boundary setting when it comes to communicating with people as far as our, our limitations and our energy and, and things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. So like last night, my, my migraines have been really intense. And so I haven't been able to hang out with my husband as much at nights. That's like our time together. We, we usually hang out with one of my siblings or something like that. And we watch TV, we have fun, we joke around, we play games. And I haven't been able to do that as often because of the migraines. And last night I said, I don't think I'm going to make it tonight. I think I just need to lay down. I'm really sorry. I know it's been a little while. And because we do that work of even acknowledging his grief and his feelings about what that does to the relationship, he's able to process through and say, yeah, I'm sad, but I get it. And he went and hung out. He's been rewatching the Adams Family movies, like the old ones. (laughs) So I think he did something like that because he's not allowed to watch RuPaul without me unless it's a season (laughs) that we've watched. Yeah, that I'm the same way with with our favorite shows. Yeah, no, I love that. I think, you know, this whole idea of being flexible, you know, I think having a disability and chronic illness requires us to change plans, uh, you know, and say no sometimes, but also be okay with uh, doing things spontaneously or a change of course. And I think that's something that is important for the people in our lives to understand and for us to empathize with them as well, what that effect is on them. Um, But to have that, that independent mindset, okay, well, I can't do this tonight. I can't physically go out of the house, but I'm going to take care of myself in this capacity. And I'm okay going off on my own because I've kind of built that into my nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important for all of us to be able to do things independently. And we have to be able to do that because we we do not have a choice. Our body is going to dictate what it is that we're going to do at times. And that sucks. And we're allowed to grieve that. And we're allowed to be sad about that. But supporting our partners in creating their own hobbies and interests and relationships and all of those things are important too. So that on nights where you have to say, I'm not going to make it tonight. I have, I'm going to go to bed early or whatever. They're able to go and do something and they're they're not left sort of in the corner, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I think, you know, without these conversations, I think we fall into the trap of resenting each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And then just building up these stories in our minds about, what the other person might be thinking and, and vice versa. 
Yeah. When you're, when you're working with clients, what do you find are some of the most prominent issues that people are coming to you with? A lot of it is ableism related. I mean, I think most of it is ableism related with, you know, we spend all of our time in this culture that says that, you know, production is equivalent to value and that we are, we are just taking energy from other people that we require too much attention. And I think that that really I mean, I can even say for myself, that makes me spin around and around. So I, and I see people spin around and around with that because we all want to be cherished and loved and valued. It's a very human need. But when we're able to identify, like we do have real value, there's so much outside of us beyond our disability, you know, like, like for me, I'm a Star Wars nerd and that is appealing to others. My friends like that. I like to have that with my friends too, or like we like to play like therapy games that I buy and that I use with clients. Like we always try those out first and I'll be honest, I have a couple of therapists in my sibling group as well. So we'll be like, let's get together and play the new therapy game. (laughs) I think that's a huge one. Even, even for people who don't have disabilities, because I feel like this whole culture of go, go, go produce post content, like all of that is just so intrinsically wired into our nervous system and that when we're hit with a diagnosis that kind of stops us in our tracks it's like oh my god now what like what am I gonna do who am I gonna be yeah this is who I am now yeah what are what are some other kind of tips and hacks that you find have worked with your clients kind of getting getting them to a better place whether that's exercises or you know conversations or questions ask themselves. So one of the things that I first go through with my clients is recognizing shame when shame comes into the space. Maybe somebody says, yeah, but your spouse has to take care of you all the time. And you start to feel that feeling inside your body. Take a deep breath. Let's notice who did, who just brought shame into the room? Was it you? If it's you, show yourself some compassion make space for that. Why is the shame coming into the space? Why are you carrying that around internally? If somebody else brought it into the space, what is it that we can do? So like, I also really like to respond to exactly what's being said. So if somebody were to say to me like, oh, well, he takes such good care of you all of the time. Like, oh, isn't that the job of a spouse? Isn't that the job of a loved one? Like we take care of each other. I take care of him too. Mm Mm-hmm. That has to come from a place of empowerment though, right? And I think yes, that's hard to get to. By recognizing those microaggressions because yes. I've been there too, where, oh my goodness, he's such a great guy for being with you or taking care of you or helping you. You know, that kind of implies yeah. that I owe this person um, that they're doing a good deed by being with me. So yeah, those microaggressions can really kind of chip away and build that shame, which from the work that I've done too, it's just like, that is the most toxic emotion that any human being can feel, right? It's kind of like bottom of the, the scale of emotions. What are some other ways we can kind of help deflect shame or, or recognize it? So I always like, and, and people can do this wherever they're at. Like if they're in a place and they start to feel that feeling and they remember like this podcast, this conversation, or if, if they're a client of mine or something, or if they've seen me on TikTok and they're like, okay, 
that feeling in my body right now, it feels really shitty. Just notice it. You don't even have to go any further with it. Just learning to notice it in itself is empowering because then there is a next step. It's not sitting in shame anymore. Because that I think that's where the the damage can really occur is when we just sit in it yeah. and it becomes like an everyday thing that we're carrying. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I love the work that you're doing. I love oh, the way you present these ideas and these perspectives on your Instagram and your TikTok. Um, they're fun, they're lighthearted, but I think they speak a lot of truth to people. They really resonate with people and yeah. especially with non-apparent disability. The challenge is even greater because we are experiencing something that many times the outside world is not aware of and cannot see. We'll be right back. This is John and Mark Cronin from John's Crazy Socks. And we're interrupting to say, we hope you're enjoying this episode, but please make sure to check out our show, The Spreading Happiness Podcast, another great show produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes are available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Join us on our new podcast as we continue our mission, Spreading Happiness. Thank you, folks. You're tuning in to Embrace It with Lainey and Estella, brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. What are some other ways that you found asking people for help or support? What are some examples of of doing that in a healthy, maybe fun way? Yeah. So, and I always treat it like matter of fact, like with my clients, when I first start working with a client, usually we're not treating the body just like it is like as a neutral entity that is just sort of existing and causing discomfort and frustration with the person and the family members. But we're looking at it as something bad at first. That's really a big piece. But I have found that when we treat it like matter of fact, like I take a medication before I eat every single meal and it, it like, I need a little cup of water. And, um, I went over to my brother's house the other day and his wife just like brought me a cup of water to put my med my medication in. And it's just like a matter of fact thing. Like, here you go, Rochelle, like, oh, thank you. You knew even before I asked for the cup of water, right? But in order to do that, they've done a lot of work. My brother also has type one, but they've done a lot of work on themselves. And I have good, I have good boundaries with them because if, if they didn't treat me that way, I wouldn't engage with them in the same way. And it's a matter of fact thing. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just like, hey, can I have my water for my chromalin? That's it. Mm. It's like super matter of fact. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that where those boundaries lie are really important because yeah. if you are noticing an individual that's in our lives, that's not honoring those boundaries, maybe we've asked them several times or we've tried to explain our perspective or our experience, you know, a number of times and it's still not working. What are some ways where we can still honor ourselves, not take on that shame, but build a boundary between ourselves and that person? Does it require a different type of conversation? Does it require us cutting them out of our lives? I mean, sometimes that's yeah. a really extreme solution, yeah. but how do we know when, when to take the next step? Yeah. So 
I, I have some super ableist family members that one, one in particular, I do not talk to anymore. I will interact with them if I have to, but that is all. And my response to them at this point is I don't want to have a relationship with you because that costs me too much energy. And that's been over a very long time of boundaries with this person. But like other members of this particular part of the family, I'll just say, no, this is just what my body does. Like if they say, oh, your hands are really shaky or your hands are really hot or they say something about that that's like potsy, like that's just how I am just super matter of fact. And they, they do laugh. They do make fun. And I take that and that's a huge red flag. And I note it and I put it in my back pocket to say, these are not safe people for me to be open and vulnerable with. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go over willingly to their house for dinner. I will go over to my brother's house willingly for dinner but I won't go over to these people's houses. And when I do have to engage, I just talk about my body as a matter of fact thing, but don't spend spoons on people who need to constantly be corrected. It's hard because there's flexibility in all of this stuff. So I love my dad. My dad is, he's a wonderful dad. He spent so long with me in the emergency room as a kid. So I want to just preface this with that. I love him very much. And he has said to me, I wish that you didn't have to think about your body so much. And my response is always, I'm so glad that I'm thinking about my body as much as I do, because me thinking about my body in this way prevents future flare-ups. It prevents me from crashing and burning. And every time he just sort of shrugs and he walks away, you know, he's he's a boomer. But he doesn't intend harm. And I know that. He's also developed the relationship with me over my entire life that's like, he means well. He's saying something ableist, but he loves me and he means well. So there is that flexibility in that too. It's more about how you feel with that person. If you feel safe, yeah. if you feel seen. Yeah. Because um, there's so much of not seeing a disability. Yeah. That. And we can't yeah. also expect people to know our experience, right? I mean, there's yeah. no way even our closest people in our lives can really understand what that's like. But at the same time, I think, having these conversations and explaining, um, you know, what doing something outside of our energy level does to our bodies or calling people out when they say things that yeah. hurt us. Yeah. I think is a good kind of indicator of like a litmus test, like, okay, let's yeah. see how we handle this. But also we have to check ourselves. Are we saying this in a way that's like aggressive, like, yeah, yelling, like, accusatory and attacking this person get ourselves in a safe space to be able to communicate how we feel in a healthy way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the, in these types of situations, I like to use myself as examples just because then I don't have to like draw from making up examples. Like with my dad, I know he is not going to push back and be like, no, you need to stop thinking about your body so much. I know he's going to be like, all right, honey, that makes sense. And he's going to go on about his way. Somebody in the other group of family members that I was talking about, I know that they're going to say something like, well, you just have to suck it up. And my answer to that is always defensive. Fuck no. So I know that like when pushed hard enough, we all will get defensive and that's really human and what I tell clients is when you are defensive, it's because you've had to become defensive. There's a reason you've become defensive. What's the reason? And that's really, yeah, I think that's really true. 
because there are certain people in our lives where we have that armor up mm-hmm. and the minute they say something that triggers us, it's like all guns are blazing. Yeah. But because we've had to do that as a, as a self-protective survival instrument, right? So yeah. we can't beat ourselves up about that. You know, I've experienced yeah. that in my life with certain people. I'm just like, I literally cannot communicate with this person at all anymore because they turn me into somebody that I don't want to be. That's a great way to describe it. Um, yeah, I think, I think you bring so much value to our community. I think the work that you're doing is so well needed and I absolutely hope that everyone will follow you and reach out to you if they feel like they could benefit from working with you. I know you offer a lot of different types of services, a lot of different approaches, family, couples, individuals. I mean, the older I get, the more I appreciate therapy and having these outlets and these people to talk to and and just these different ways of processing our experiences. Thank you so much for that. And I I even want to add, like, sometimes social media is enough too. Like, I, I have changed my whole outlook on social media throughout the pandemic because I see people being really vulnerable and calling out ableism and calling out things that they feel uncomfortable with. And I think that's a great example and a really great way for people to connect with others as well. I mean, I've, I've had clients who have come to me and said, I think I'm autistic. I was on TikTok and all of a sudden I fell down autistic TikTok and I think that's me. And we go through the criteria and there it is. Yeah. I think, you know, that's uh, social media is always a double-edged sword. You have to be very intentional on who you're following and what messages you're letting into your, into your brain, through your eyes and your screen. Um, I'm just being really mindful of unfollowing and, and taking inventory on how, certain influencers make you feel, but I think it is a great tool. We do our best on our, on our Instagram to spotlight people that really have empowering messages and are leading, you know, breaking barriers and, and crashing through ceilings to make things happen. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for being part of that, for being one of our our shining lights on social media. You too. I know you do wonderful work. I love, I love what you've done and I so appreciate you reaching out. Well, it was so awesome having you on the podcast. Really appreciate how you are really making a difference for people in the chronic illness and disability community and focusing on the issues that all of us go through uh, and continue to go through. So thank you so much. And you guys all follow. Hey, Embracers. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Embrace It podcast. Brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by George Andriopoulos and hosted by Lainey Ishbia and Estella Lugo. Our music and sound effects are licensed through Epidemic Sound. Embrace It is hosted with Buzzsprout. Do you have a disability-related topic you'd love for us to feature? Or could someone you know be a fabulous guest on our show? We would love to hear your comments and feature them on our next podcast. So leave us a voicemail or you can even send us a text to 631-517-0066. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at embraceit underscore podcast on Instagram. And make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. We hope you join us next time and continue to embrace it.